I'm glad to be able to share with you Joel chapter 2. Now, if you remember Joel chapter 1, it was a fun Sunday last week, wasn't it? Where we talked about how God hates sin and is a God of judgment and is a God of justice, right? And we saw how ugly sin was. Fantastic Sunday. Now, today is more of the same thing. We're going to see Joel chapter 2 that God is not done yet, right? In Joel chapter 1, we see God... Um, having already punished his people. They're already in a state where uh, they're experiencing the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment upon them. And it's a locust plague that's ravaged the land. And, um, and there's a drought as well that has withered everything dry, sucked everything dry. It's like a desert. The, the, plant, the, the land has become, gone from a garden to a desert. Uh, now, in chapter 2, we are seeing that God is going to send a second day of the Lord upon them. He's not done. You've already experienced it. You think that's it? Nope. I'm going to send another one upon you. And this time, it's not going to be a locust plague. It's going to be a rampaging army. Now, in the midst of this, what do we do with this kind of God that we see here? The interesting thing is, in chapter 2, it's actually a pivot point. It's a moment where we actually start to see a more holistic picture of who God is. That he's not just a God of judgment that hates sin. But we actually start to see that this is a God who hates sin, absolutely. But he's also a God that's slow to anger, compassionate, gracious. And the reason why he wants his people to return to him is because he wants to bless them. It's because he wants to see them prosper. And it's because he longs to show his love to them. And that's what we're going to see all in chapter 2 and moving forward as well in the future Sundays. Now, today, this is what I want us to walk away with. Very simply, oh, well, the takeaway home, the, 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 the only action I really want us to do after this is to return to the Lord. That's it. That's the only call to action today is return to the Lord. But the main reason why we should return to the Lord is because of who God is. When we see who God is, when we have a greater revelation of his majesty, his glory, his love, and his character, it draws us naturally to want to be by his side, to want to follow him, to want to love him, to want to obey him. Therefore, my goal today and my prayer, my hope, is that we all leave not condemned for our sin, not even more motivated to obey God, but to be more in love with God to have a greater revelation of who God is, okay? So as we begin, let's pray. Let's pray for that. Father, today is in your hands. This message is in your hands, oh Lord. There's no words that I can possibly say to make people see you, see your glory, to see your love for them, to see your graciousness. Only you can do that, Holy Spirit. So Lord, Holy Spirit, come and you convict our hearts. You open the, uh, the spiritual eyes of our hearts to see you clearly, to catch a glimpse of your glory. And may we run to you. May we run to you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So let's turn to Joel chapter 2. As with last week, um, it's not going to be on the screen. So if you can, uh, grab your Bible uh, on your phone or physical copy of one and follow along. Joel chapter 2, verse 1 to 17. Joel chapter 2, verse 1 to 17. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. 
Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. Verse 2, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them, fire devours. Behind them, a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Before them, the earth shakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows, he may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly. Gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Okay, so the first half of this chapter, or of what we've read, describes a coming day of the Lord. It's about to happen. It's any moment now. And it's described, it's summed up in these two verses, right? That book end, the description of the army. Verse two and verse 10. Verse two says, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Verse 10, before them, the earth shakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. Now, throughout the Bible, you actually see this kind of cosmic shaking kind of imagery where the sun stop shining, the stars fall out of the sky, that kind of thing, the earth trembling. Whenever you see this, it's usually metaphorical in nature, right? It's not trying to say here that the army is literally going to cause the earth to shake or an eclipse to come, right? That's not the point it's trying to make. The point it's trying to make is to show us poetically and metaphorically that creation itself is going to reverse in order. So if you see here, it's specifically mentioning darkness, gloom, sun, stop shining, stars falling out of heaven, the earth, the dry ground, shaking. If you go back to Genesis, you'll see that the beginning of the world is God setting the, these things into place, the stars shining, the sun shining, light being born, right? So what it's trying to say here is that 
when the day of the Lord comes, it is nature reversing. It is poetically describing an upheaval of the status quo. It is like the saying, the world will never be the same again. That is what it's trying to describe in you, poetically, right? Because it's trying to give you the feeling of what it would be like when the world is never the same again, right? What would that be like? It would be like nature itself turning back upon itself, okay? That is what it's describing here, okay, metaphorically. And so, what the message is sending to us is very important. It's this, the day of the Lord is a moment in time where the awesome God of the universe, of creation, visits the earth to restore a creation in disorder back to order. If you remember, right, the day of the Lord only comes, right, he comes to punish evil and vindicate the righteous. And evil, last week we described and defined it as um, the kind of evil that has gripped a nation so tightly and seeped into every house and every heart is an evil that has resulted in the poor, the disenfranchised, the refugee in society getting abused and exploited, where justice favors the powerful, is a world where the land is abused and creation is suffering. And the day of the Lord is when God physically comes and sets things right. Evil is, an, is a creation in disorder, right? That's what sin brings, that's what evil brings to the world. When the day of the Lord comes, God is restoring order back to creation. He is turning things back around. And I want you to see this. We see this described in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. It's very interesting. 2 Chronicles 36, I'm gonna show you this, verse 20 to 21. Listen to how the result of God's punishment upon Israel is described. Okay, this is when God brings his people of Israel into exile for 70 years. The land is described as this. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his successors under the kingdom of Persia came to power. Catch this. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. So this punishment upon the people was actually, you see this, God restoring creation back into order, allowing the land itself to enjoy its long overdue Sabbath rest. When the day of the Lord comes, he is not just righting wrongs, he's restoring order. He's restoring his good creation back into what it should be. And that means punishing evil and vindicating his righteous ones. And the day of the Lord that looks, that, um, the, the, the form the day of the Lord is coming in Joel chapter two is a rampaging army, okay? And as we read that chapter, I'm not sure if you caught, it's poetic, right? It's not literally describing that, you know, it's using very poetic imagery. Um, and it's meant to instill fear into you. Did you catch that? Sometimes when we read the Bible, we can just gloss over things and it's just like, well, that doesn't make sense, so I'm just gonna ignore that. But as you read it, do you kind of catch that, I, that, that picture of this army that is just, just slowly making its way over the hills, right? And as you see it approaching, you just see the forest just suddenly just turn white, right? Just, things just disappear as they come closer and closer to you. 
And you see that as they draw near, they're just not stopping. They're not stopping. They're just slowly making their way towards you, and you know they're coming for you. That's the picture that God is trying to show the nation of Israel. This army is on its way, and it's not stopping. It's going to come right through the city, and it's going to invade every crevice and every house and every window is not going to be spared, right? It is terrifying, isn't it? Well, that's, that's the idea it's trying to give you. This army is terrifying. Now catch this. God is not shy at saying, I am at the head of this army. At the head of this army is not a human general. It's not a human king. It's not a human emperor. It is God himself who thunders at the head of his army. He, has, he is at the head of this army, this terrifying army. And this is the God that we just sang, all hell King Jesus. Okay, same God. Does that terrify you at all? It should. It should, right? Because that is part of who God is. God is terrifying. He is the Lord of hosts, of angel armies. He is the Lord that commands these armies to come and ex execute his judgment upon evil nations. He is absolutely terrifying. He is awesome and he is great. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, but Jesus, but Jesus, he's different. He's that suffering Savior on the cross. He's so gentle. He's so kind. He's so loving. He's so compassionate. It just isn't gel. Have you read Revelations? Have you read Revelations? Revelations 19 in particular. I want to show you this. Right? The same Jesus that you see on the cross. The same Jesus that will return looking like this. Verse 19. Chapter 19, verse 11 to 16. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has his name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is our King Jesus. He is great. He is awesome, and he is downright terrifying. He is. I wonder when it says we should fear God. Oh, this might be controversial. I don't know, but <laughs> I'm going to say it anyway. Um, I wonder where it says when it says you should fear God. When people say it's in reverence to Him, absolutely, it's in reverence to Him. But I wonder if there's that little bit where we should actually kind of be a bit afraid of Him. Like, actually, like, this is God of armies. And I am Amos of no armies. <laughs> right? The God of thunder, lightning, who commands things, and things just happen. We sang those songs, right? 
the earth will shake, heavens tremble at his name, right? That is the God that we serve and we should stand in awe of him, bow down before him. Our knees should tremble before him. I wonder when he comes, how will we react? I used to think that I would be like, oh my gosh, Jesus, it's so, so good to see and run into his arms. I actually think that more and more as I see him, I wonder if I'll actually fall prostrate before him and go, Jesus, you have finally returned. My king, my savior. Because this is so important. Before we jump, before we just cling on to God of compassion, slow to anger, gracious, and we're gonna get to that. We must, we must, it's so important, we must also grasp and not ignore the fact that our God is a great, awesome, terrifying God. Because we see that in scripture. The same God of the New Testament that we see hanging on the cross is the same God that we see in Joel. And we should not think they're different. They're the same God. And so, how should we respond? How is the nation called to respond? Return to him. Return. Return to him. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Return to your God. That is the cry of the prophet. Now, this word return is the Hebrew word shuv, like shove, right? But shuv, shuv, it literally means like you're walking in one direction and then you turn, you take a 180 degree turn and you return back to where you came from. That's what it means. That's what the word means, to return. Now, logically speaking, if you're told to return, it means at some point you must have left right? If you've been told to return, you must have left at some point. Others, there'll be nothing to return to. This is the crux of what I suppose we need to understand about repentance. Repentance is not just saying sorry, and it's not just regretting what we've done or said. Repentance actually means waking up to the reality that we have actually walked away from him. We've abandoned him. And we need to not just say sorry, not just regret, oh, that was a terrible thing I did over there, but to turn away, turn away from how we were walking before and to go back to him. What sin does is it turns us away from walking with God and we're walking away from him. We start walking away from him. We start leaving him. Maybe not immediately, maybe we not feel it immediately, but that's the trajectory that we're making. And repentance, true repentance is us returning to him, abandoning sin, abandoning evil, and coming back to our God. And the kind of repentance, the kind of returning that is instructed and called upon here to the Israelites is to return with all our hearts, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Now, um, there's this, that, that, um, how should I put it? There is the spiritual act of repentance, of returning, and there's the physical act uh, that shows it, right? So you see both here. It says, with, return with all your heart. And then it says in the same breath, with fasting, weeping, and mourning, right? Sometimes we get the order wrong. We get the priority wrong. 
we think that God wants our fasting, weeping, and mourning. So I'm gonna come here, I'm going to cry out to him, I'm gonna bow my knee before him, I'm gonna make promises to him. God, I will serve you for all my days. You know, we make all these lavish promises to him, thinking that that's really what he wants. He wants our fasting, weeping, and mourning. What he wants is our heart. What he wants is our heart that overflows with fasting, weeping, and mourning. A heart that's so broken and so grieved over the fact that we have abandoned God that it shows itself. We can't help but weep. We can't help but mourn. We can't help but fast over our sin and our brokenness. That's what it means. And that's why it says there in the next verse, rend your heart and not your garments. Because God is not after your bowed knee. He's not after the tears you cry. He's after your bowed will. He's after the tears of your heart. That's what he's after. And may it show in how we live. May it show in how we live. Sometimes we think that, oh, repentance is just about silent introspection. I'm just gonna stand here, I'm just gonna repent before God, and that's it. Sometimes that's, we, we think that's how we are to praise God, in fact. That's how we are to respond to him. It's meant to be just all silent because it's all about spiritual act, right? It's all a spiritual thing that's happening. No, we should not think that the spiritual and the physical are detached. They're linked. When you have a genuine spiritual experience or a genuine spiritual hunger, it will show in how you live and how you worship and how you act, right? They're not detached. And that's what we're seeing here. Return to the Lord with all your heart that shows in fasting, weeping, and mourning with contrition and a broken heart. Rend your heart and not your garments. But to whom are we returning to now? Here's where I want to spend the rest of our time, okay? In this one verse, okay? Verse 13, because this one verse is so significant. I believe it's the turning point in this entire book. I think so, at least, okay? Because here we see the character of God. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Calamity. Now, um, this is a direct reference to one of the most important texts in the Old Testament. It's Exodus 34, verse six to seven. Okay, if you're familiar with it, it's when God passes by Moses and he declares himself. He declares the character of God. And he says this about himself, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful or compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You see the similarities there, right? It's so clear. Joel 2 verse 13 is reminding the people, this is the God whom you serve. This is who you serve. And that is why you should repent to him. That is why you should return to him. And that is why you should have hope that he will relent from sending this disaster upon you. Because this is who he is. He is not just a God of judgment. He is not just a God 
that hates evil. He is that, but he's also a God who is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents from sending calamity. Now, I want to show this to you, right? I want to show you this to you, and I want you to see, or catch a glimpse at least, of how beautiful our God is. I'm gonna do it in reverse though, okay? So I'm gonna start with abounding in steadfast love. Abounding in steadfast love is the Hebrew, the direct Hebrew translation is two words, rav chesed, rav chesed. Rav means great or a lot. It, a good translation is overflowing, abounding. And chesed, is, a good translation I think is loyal love or steadfast love. You see this word coming up all over the Old Testament. It often is translated as mercy a lot of the time. Um, it's sometimes translated as just love. But I think the better translation is steadfast, loyal love because it describes God's loyalty and faithfulness to his covenant promises to bless and forgive his people even when they're unfaithful to him. It's a kind of um, stickiness that God has to his people. That even when you walk away from, from me, I am not gonna walk away from you. Right? Wherever you go, I, I'm gonna go. In fact, in Ruth, you know the story of Ruth? Uh, Ruth, yes. Uh, Ruth and Naomi, right? When um, all the husbands die, right? And Ruth is this Moabite um, that really has no obligation to stay with Naomi. Naomi even relieves her of that obligation and goes, you know what, just go back to your home. And Ruth goes, no. Where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. Where you die, I die. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. And that act is described as chesed, as loyal love. That's the kind of love that God has towards his people. That's the kind of love that God has towards us. Even when we don't deserve it, even when we walk away from him, even when we are sinful, he wants, he longs to love us. He longs to be close to us. And he longs to show us grace and mercy. And it's this very nature of God that gives the people of Israel hope in Joel chapter two, because there's absolutely no reason why God should relent from sending this disaster. They don't deserve it. They don't deserve mercy. They deserve punishment. But it's because of God's loyal love, his chesed, that, they, that will compel him, if they return to him, to show them love, mercy, and grace. It's this chesed that we can cling to and lean on because we know that God longs to show us favor. He longs to love us. He does love us even when we don't deserve it. I think the parable of the prodigal son, if you're familiar with that parable, is a great picture of God's loyal love. I mean, the story goes very, very quickly. It goes, the youngest son um, of this man um, asked for his inheritance early so he can just squander it and go and live a wild life. And the father concedes, he gives his, all, all the, um, his share of the inheritance. The youngest son goes to a faraway land, lives it up, squanders it on wild pies and all this wild living, and ends up poor and destitute, feeding pigs, completely humiliated. He wakes up, comes to his senses one day and goes, man, my father's servants are living better than I do. I'm gonna go to, I'm gonna go to him. Now, I don't think he's gonna accept me back. So I'm gonna just request that just to take me back as a, just a servant, right? That would be better than where I am now. So he starts heading back. On his way home, as he's far away, the father spots him 
and the father runs to him and doesn't slap him, he embraces him. And the son can't even get out his spiel of, Father, I have sinned against you and you just made me a servant. The father goes, quick, bring a robe, bring a ring. We're gonna throw you a party, man, because you're back. You return to me and I was waiting for you. That is God's chesed. That is God's loyal love. Now, do you think if you return to him, how he, will he respond? He's gonna run to you. He's waiting with open arms. Not because you deserve it, because that's who he is. That's the kind of God you serve. He is abounding, overflowing with this chesed, loyal love. He is slow to anger, abounding in loyal love. Now, the, the important thing here to note is that firstly, God does get angry. God does get angry. Just like everyone here gets angry, right? God also gets angry. Just the difference is God is very slow to anger, okay? The Hebrew phrase here is erek epayim. Erek epayim. It literally translates to long of nose. I know, very weird. But if you... Um, but um, if you remember those cartoons, have you ever seen those cartoons where uh, uh, the, a guy's face gets really hot, right, and slowly becoming red, 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 and then when it, he's complete, his face is completely red, he just, steam just gushes out of his nose or his ears, right? Have you seen those before? Yeah. That's the kind of picture that we're getting, okay? That's kind of what it means. It's describing how when you're, when you're um, really angry, you're, you start to huff and puff. So it's describing here the fact that God's, nose is very long, means that it takes a long time for his nose to get hot. <laughs> he is slow to anger. He is slow to anger. Now, it means that, that he doesn't immediately give us what our sins deserve. So, all things being equal, right? If you slap me, I wanna slap you back, right? All things being fair. You slap me, I slap you, okay? But God doesn't do that, right? God doesn't do that. He doesn't give us what our sins immediately deserve, right? He, you slap him, he continues treating things as normal, oftentimes, right? He continues to bless you even, continues to show you kindness and generosity. He does that for everyone across the face of the planet, okay? God is slow to anger, but how we often interpret that slowness to anger is that he doesn't care, or that our sin is not that bad. But in actual fact, what we see here is because of God's slowness to anger. Now, Romans chapter two, verse four to five, and throughout the scripture, in fact, we see actually what happens to our sin. <clears throat> okay, I wanna show you this. Chapter two, Romans chapter two, verse four to five. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So here we see God's slowness to anger is not meant to give you a free pass or to show you that, you know what, I don't really care do what you want, is meant to lead you towards repentance. It's his mercy, it's his grace upon you. But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, i.e. the day of the Lord. <clears throat> so, you see here, did you catch that? Your sins, our sins are being stored up, stored up 
to be released on the day of the Lord, okay? Uh, imagine like there's this big goblet <clears throat> and every time we sin, it's been poured out into this goblet okay? and slowly this goblet's been filled up. <clears throat> on the day of the Lord, God takes this goblet and he pours it out on his people. He goes, here it is. This is what your sin is, okay? I've, been, I've waited a long time for you guys to return back to me, but you haven't, so here it is. Judgment for your sins. Now, here is, and, and this is what we see in Joel chapter one and promised in Joel chapter two, right? This is the judgment of, of God upon the sins of the nation of Israel <clears throat> being stored up, right, for I don't know how long, right? Oftentimes we see in the Bible that God often doesn't immediately punish sinful nations. Sometimes he'll wait for years, sometimes even centuries, okay, centuries before he punishes an evil nation, okay? That's how long God will often wait for his people. Now, so what we see in Joel chapter two is God telling them, I'm gonna pour out this cup upon you, okay? However, for us, the cross changes everything. Because on the cross, Jesus took this cup and he drank it. Jesus took the cup of our sin and he emptied it on the cross. So now, God, can be, God is slow to anger. In fact, God's wrath is not meant for us. God's wrath is not meant for us. When you look at the cup of your sin, <clears throat> how much is in there? It's empty. It's empty. Because the day of the Lord has already come early for you. It came on the cross. That's your day of the Lord. That's the day of judgment for you. But it came not upon you, it came upon Jesus, because he emptied that cup that had all the wrath of God for our sins stored up in it, and he took it upon himself. Isn't that amazing? You guys don't seem amazed, but it is amazing. <laughs> it is incredible, <clears throat> because we deserve that cup, but Jesus took it upon himself. He drank it on our behalf. Therefore, is God slow to anger? Yes. Why? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. He took the anger that was meant for me. Amen. Praise the Lord. God is compassionate, slow to anger, overflowing in steadfast love. The Hebrew word for compassion is rahum. Rahum. It's related to the Hebrew word rachem, which is the Hebrew word for womb. <clears throat> um, now, the significance of this is that the emotion of compassion that God has towards us is the kind of compassion that a mother would have for their newborn baby. Uh, I'm not sure if you remember, or for those who are parents, I'm not sure if you remember, or those who have kids, you have no idea, but. Um, if you remember when your child was first born, how much love and compassion did you have for that child? <clears throat> now, I have a daughter that's one year old, okay, so it's very fresh in my mind, okay? Um, now, the birth of my daughter was not entirely smooth. By the end of it, when she was finally lying um, in the hospital bed, all nice and warm, uh, my wife was on five hours sleep over three days or something like that, okay? She was absolutely exhausted, spent beyond measure. Um, now, even though she had nothing left to give, 
the moment my daughter cried, she would jump, jump to her side, right? Anything that my daughter needed, she would do anything possible to meet, even if it cost her her life, even if it cost her a moment's more sleep. She would stay up just that little bit more to gaze at her or to make sure that she was warm and comfortable or still breathing because, you know, new parents, we don't know what's happening there. So, um, <clears throat> so but she would do anything to make sure our daughter was safe, warm, having a good time, still alive, right? That's the love. That's compassion that a mother has for their child. That's how God sees us. We are like newborn babies in his arms. He would do anything to see us flourish, to see good for us, to see us whole and flourishing. And that is why he sent Jesus, isn't it? Isn't Jesus the ultimate demonstration of God's compassion on us? He literally gave up his life so that we could be saved from the destruction that sin brings to our lives. God, he would do anything for you. In fact, he did everything for you. He gave up everything that he had by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to die for you because he loves you. You know how he sees you? He sees you like his very own child. That's the compassion he has for you. And lastly, finally, <clears throat> God is gracious. God is gracious. Sorry, <clears throat> my throat is failing me. All right, he is gracious. The Hebrew word is hanun. Hanun. It means to look upon a person favorably or treat them with favor. It is related to the Hebrew word chen, <clears throat> which means to be delightful, charming, or pleasing to the eyes. Esther chapter five, verse two. When the king saw Esther, the queen standing in the courtyard, she obtained favor, chen, in his sight. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter, which was in his hand. See, the king saw Esther from a distance and she looked pleasing to him. And so he treated her with favor, with chen. We all have those people in our lives that when they show up, our eyes light up, our day gets better. Right? We also have those people in our lives that when we see them, our days get worse. But um, <clears throat> there are people in our lives that when we see them, immediately we go, oh man, today's good, right? Because this person's here. For me, it's my wife and my daughter. Right? When I see them, my day gets better. My eyes light up, right? I'm joyful to see them. That's what it means to have hen, right, in someone's eyes. And when you have hen in someone's eyes, you generally are gracious to them. You want to, do, you want to be generous to them. You want to be kind to them. You do anything for them, right? That's what it means to show favor and kindness to someone, right? So if God is hanun, if he's gracious, it means that he longs to delight in us and be generous and kind to us. Now, I want you to get how crazy this is because there is no reason for God to be gracious to us because we have no chen in his sight. Do you realize that? There is nothing deserving or pleasing in us in his sight. In fact, we often do things that are not pleasing to him, that are not very deserving of chen, right? Yet, God wants to show us 
can. He wants to delight in us. He wants to shower his favor upon us, even though we don't deserve it. God so longs to be gracious to us that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price for our sins. Our sin, which is disgusting to God's sight, Jesus removed from us with his suffering and death so that now when God looks on us, he doesn't see our sin, he sees the pleasing sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Do you get this? When God sees us, he doesn't see our hen because we have no hen. He sees Jesus' hen. When he looks at us, we share in the favor of his son, Jesus Christ. And that is why God can be gracious to us. He can delight in us. He can show us favor, mercy, kindness, generosity. He can do all these things. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. He took our disgustingness and our sinfulness that disgust the Lord and He became sin for us so that we could take His righteousness for us. That is us sharing in His favor, in His hen. That is what God did for us and that is who our God is. Amen. Hallelujah. It should make us what? Praise Him. Sing to Him. Worship Him. It should make us return to Him. It should make us wonder, why on earth did I want to walk away from Him in the first place? <clears throat> why did I want to pursue that sin that drew me away from Him? I want to return to Him. <clears throat> because who would not want to return to a God like this? I want to end. I'm way over time. I'm sorry. But um, I'm, I'm going to just end just with what, this one thing that came to me this morning. Um, there's some of us that may feel that you've been dealt a bad hand by God. You may feel that you're being punished by Him or you feel as though you, He has been cruel to you or the people around you. You hear this message of a God, a God of justice that hates evil and you can, you're actually, actually more comfortable with that. <clears throat> but when you hear a God of compassion, kindness, slow to anger, abounding in loyal love, you have a problem with that because that's not your life. That's not the season you're going through. And I get it, in these circumstances, it can be understandably difficult to continue to cling on to God or to trust Him or even to worship Him. However, um, my plea to you is, as much as it hurts, and as much as it may seem counterintuitive, <clears throat> it is in those moments where God seems unjust, angry or cruel, those are the moments when we need to look up and remember who God is. Um, because, you know, as you can tell by my voice, <clears throat> I'm not 100%. <laughs> um, and I haven't been so for <clears throat> a few weeks. And this has been the busiest few weeks of my year. And my daughter has been sick, my family's been sick, and I've been wondering, God, why are you like this? You know how busy I am. I'm serving your people. I'm preaching today. Yet my daughter got up 5.45 a.m. Why are you doing this to me? Why are you not compassionate, kind, and merciful to me? 
It was in that moment, and I know this sounds really trivial compared to some of the stuff that you're, you may be going through. But for me, that was like a real like, God, why are you not like this? Um, and it was actually in that moment that God had to let me go, hey, hold on. I know I may not be like this, but do you trust that I am who I say I am? I know that I may not seem very kind to you right now, but do you, can you at least see that in those moments where I seem incongruent to what you think and to what you see on Sunday or in the, see in the Bible, can you still, even in those moments, run to me? Even in those moments, can you trust that I am good, that I am just, that I am kind, that I am compassionate, that I long to show you favor? Can you still trust in who I am? You know, the book of Job, it records the torment of this poor man called Job and his family was wiped out in a day. He was, his entire body was afflicted with pain from head to toe. And the entire book is him wrestling with God, trying to find an answer for his pain and his suffering. What is God's response? God doesn't respond to him and go, poor guy, so sorry. He doesn't go, here, let me explain to you why this happened. No, he doesn't do anything like that. He just goes, this is who I am. Do you remember who I am, Job? I am the God of the universe. Who are you? I know this may sound so unsympathetic, but that was the answer that Job needed. Sometimes our circumstances have no answer. There is no answer to what you're going through. But God may not give you an answer, but He does give you Himself. He does say, look, I may not tell you why you're going through what you're going through, but I'm gonna tell you, this is who I am. You can run to me and you can trust in me that I will be who I say I am. That if I'm compassionate, I am compassionate. That if I'm abounding in loyal love, I am abounding in loyal love. That if I am going to be gracious to you, I will be gracious to you. Even in your darkest moments, can you still trust in the God who is like this. So, church, can we all stand? And um, look, for those of you who are struggling, who really are struggling today to reconcile this God that you've heard today with your circumstances, um, but you want to run to Him, you want to return to Him, we want to pray for you, we want to join with you um, come down and we would love to pray for you. Uh, honestly, there's nothing special about this place up the front. Simply, you coming down is you showing physically that you're returning to God and we get to pray with you and that'd be awesome. But for the rest of us, I just want us to worship God. I want to just spend that just brief moment praising Him, glorifying Him because that's the least of what he deserves. And in ways that we have walked away from him, let us return to our great God.